Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Murder in Modesto, Who Was Scott and Lacey Peterson. This is part two of a six-part series that will take a deep dive into the murders of Lacey Peterson and her unborn child, Connor Peterson, and the first-degree murder trial of Scott Peterson. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Lacey Denise Rocha was born on Sunday, May 4th, 1975, to Dennis Robert Rocha and her mother, Sharon Ruth Anderson, who had been high school sweethearts. The Rochas had inherited a dairy farm from Dennis's family in Escalon, California, where the couple raised their two children, Brent Rocha, who was three years senior to Lacey, and Lacey. Lacey loved spending time working and playing on the family's farm, and loved spending time with her mother gardening and planting flowers. This may be where she developed a love for nature, plants, and horticulture. Sometime in 1976, Sharon and Dennis, who had been together since high school, were experiencing some marital challenges and made the decision to divorce. Sharon and Lacey, who would have been two years old at the time, moved off the milk farm into Modesto, 10 miles south of Escalon. Brent, who was four, stayed behind with his father. Lacey would travel every weekend to the milk farm to spend time with her father as well. When Lacey was two years old, Sharon would begin a long-term relationship with Ron Gransky, bringing Ron's son, Darren Frank Gransky, into the relationship. Ron and Sharon would remain together until Ron's death in 2018. Coincidentally, Lacey's biological father would also pass away in 2018 as well. Lacey was an active child. She was described as talkative and the center of attention. She became interested in cheerleading in junior high school, This would be a passion that she would continue to pursue at Thomas Downey High School, where she cheered for the Knights from 1989 until 1993 before graduating. After high school, Lacey chose to pursue a college education, relocating to San Luis Obispo to attend the California Polytechnic State University, where her love for plants and gardening pushed her to pursue a degree in ornamental horticulture. Here, her professors recognized Lacey as a standout student, in her class. It is also where her path crossed Scott Peterson's, a slightly older, charming, and good-looking waiter who was also a student at the California Polytechnic State University. Lacey, being the forward and fearless young lady she was, wasted no time pursuing her desires and sent her phone number to Scott, and the two would begin a two-year whirlwind romance that would eventually result in a marriage, a few months before Lacey was set to graduate from the university. Sharon and Ron got together pretty quick after her divorce with yeah. Dennis. But it also looked like Dennis was still very close to the family. Like it wasn't like he was like estranged or they didn't. Right. Yeah. It seemed like they were still like pretty close knit. Like they were, very, they, they co-parented very well. It seems like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely seemed that way. Now Lacey looks like she was uh, one of the popular kids. It looks like she was like, she was attractive. She was um, athletic. She was into cheerleading, the center of attention. Um, What have you heard about Lacey in school? 
really just that she was just a really fun person. You know, I've seen some videos where she's dancing and, you know, doing little fake commercials and stuff and really cute. Definitely somebody that you want to be around who's just very fun, very positive energy. And she had a little bit of a country girl and city girl in her both. You know, she would spend time with her father out on the dairy farm, but then she also liked being in the city as well. So she liked the city girl life too. And she was able to navigate both. A lot of people described her as being very intelligent and like a go-getter. She was very goal-driven. A lot of people talked about how she... You know, if she wanted something, she was going to get it. And, you know, even with Scott, what's funny is that when she first gave him her number, supposedly he threw it away initially and Mm. thought it was kind of like a joke, like she was too good for him, you know, and then she saw him again. So she just was kind of known for going after whatever it was that she wanted. So she never thought anything was not attainable for her. One of the things that I see that's been left out of a lot of the investigation is a lot of her personality wasn't really captured or communicated. All you see is the photos of her. They're all still shots. Not a lot of videos when she was older, just some videos when she was young. But my take from what I understand about Lacey Peterson is that she was she was headstrong. Right. She had in her opinion. If something was bothering her, she was going to address it. She was going to talk about it. She's not going to shy away. She seemed like she would have been a fighter. Yeah, uh, Those are all things that, that I kind of took away from, from Lacey that originally when I was first exposed, and I've been exposed to this case many times over the years, growing up, I knew about the case when it happened. I was actually in Germany when this case happened and uh, deploying to Iraq for the first time when this case kind of kicked off. And so I didn't see the 24-hour news and everything that was going on. Like I wasn't exposed to it because I was overseas. But I heard about it. Even out there, I heard about it. Well, I heard about what was going on. And then over the years, as it's popped back up, I've seen it in, in interviews and television shows and things like that. I never really got to understand who Lacey was. I didn't know she was a cheerleader. I didn't know she had a degree in horticulture. Yeah. I didn't know those things about her. And getting to know her a little bit more, I don't believe that she would have been the kind of person that would have been okay with Scott cheating on her. I agree. Yeah. I also don't think that she was the kind of person either that would have kept that from her friends or her family. No, no. I think that she would have reached out, even if it wasn't to her mom, I think that she would have reached out to one of her friends and been like, hey, look, you know, this is what's happening. And she would have been shattered, you know? She had gotten to a point in her life where, you know, she graduated high school and college. She, they had had a business together at one point and then, you know, she gets married, she gets pregnant and she's stepping into the life that she always wanted to have. And so I think that to find out something of that magnitude, she 100% would have said something to somebody. Scott Lee Peterson was born October 24th, 1972 in San Diego, California to Lee Arthur Peterson and Jacqueline Jackie Helen Latham. Lee, Scott's father, owned a crate packaging company and Jackie, his mother, owned a boutique in La Jolla, California called The Put-On. Jackie, Scott's mother, was raised in an orphanage, the Nazareth House in San Diego, after her father was murdered at the young age of 32 and her mother experienced a nervous breakdown and was unable to care for Jackie and her siblings. Nuns ran the school and Jackie's mother was allowed to visit weekly. Jackie would have been a baby when she was sent to be raised in the orphanage shortly after her father's murder, so I think it would have been what she always knew. Jackie's father, John Jack Harvey Latham, he went by Jack, was a tire shop and salvage yard owner. On December 21st, 1945, shortly before Christmas, Jack was murdered by Robert Sewell, a former employee who had recently been terminated. Robert would eventually confess to the murder of Jack Latham and would later die in San Quentin in 1951 while serving a life sentence for murder. Ironically, it would be the same prison where Jack's grandson, Scott Peterson, would later be remanded to for the murder of his wife, Lacey Peterson. Unlike Jackie, Lee, Scott's father, came from a very large family where he was the youngest of 12 children. 
His mother was the eighth daughter of a Lithuanian immigrant. Growing up with six step-siblings, Scott was forced to share everything to include his small room in their two-bedroom apartment in San Diego. At an early age, Scott picked up the game of golf, and by the time he was 14 years old, he was good enough to beat his father, who was an avid golfer. Scott had ambitions of becoming a professional golfer and played golf for the University of San Diego High School's golf team, a private Catholic high school where he spent two years on the same team as professional golfer Phil Mickelson. After Mickelson graduated, Scott became the star of the school's golf team, where he was described as both popular and a leader. After graduating from high school, Scott intended to follow Mickelson to Arizona State University on a partial golf scholarship, but he would never get the chance to play for the Sun Devils. When Chip Couch, the father of future PGA Tour player Chris Couch, discovered that Scott had taken Chris drinking and chasing girls and asked for Scott to be removed from the team. The coach, who was desperate to keep Chris Couch at the university, dropped Scott without hesitation. And as a result, Scott only attended one semester of college at Arizona State before transferring to Cuesta Community College in San Luis Obispo, where he would play on the golf team for two years. Later on, he would transfer to Cal Poly, where he would major in agricultural business, and eventually, swore he met his future wife, Lacey Rocha, while working as a part-time waiter at a cafe. His father would later testify that Scott had become discouraged due to the high level of talent of Mickelson and Couch, which may have derailed his vision of a pro golf career. There's a lot of travesty on the Peterson side of the house. Yeah. There's so much irony in the fact that his maternal grandfather would have been murdered around Christmas time. Right. That's crazy. The That's irony crazy. of that is crazy. It's as crazy. What What are your thoughts on uh, on Scott? So he's the only child of Lee Arthur Peterson and Jacqueline Peterson. She goes by Jackie. So he was kind of looked at as the golden child. And um, there is a sister of his who actually wrote a book about the reasons she believes that Scott Peterson is guilty. And there's a number of different things that she talks about. I want to say that she came back into the Peterson's life somewhere within a, a few years of meeting Lacey Peterson. And at the time her and her brother had found out where her mom was and wanted to meet their mom in person. They had both been given up for adoption. They were oh. um, Jackie's kids. And she said that when she had heard about Scott Peterson, that she had heard kind of like he was the golden child, like he could do no wrong, made the family proud, did all the right things. And, you know, and she said when she met him, that, that was kind of the takeaway for her as well. He was good at everything. He was good looking. He was very respectful. Like nobody really saw any, he's a weirdo or, you know, he's capable of something, you know, ridiculous. That wasn't the sentiments of most people when they encountered, you know, Scott Peterson. Now, where I saw that was different was there's a number of different people that went to school with him who would later come out and say like, he was a jerk, like kind of tried to come off as alpha male was not very nice to people. So yeah. His classmates from high school also describe him as cocky. So that's kind of how he carried himself in high school. Plus, you know, you got to think he's the youngest child and nothing against the youngest child. Cause well, I think Youngest children are typically pretty cool, but <laughs> eh. <laughs> but because he's the youngest child, his parents obviously have had experience of having their other kids and going through what they went through with their other kids. So by the time they got to him, they're a more, they're a better parent. They're more financially, you know, set. So, you know, his mom and dad had money and he got to live a life with a lot of opportunity. It looks like from what I'm understanding about his family's financial situation is that that kind of developed as he grew up. I don't feel like it started off like they just had a lot of money and they spoiled him because they were living in like a two bedroom apartment in San Diego and he was sharing a bedroom with, with another one of his brother. I think it was Joe. He did go to a private school. So obviously that was expensive. They saved no cost to send him to a good school. 
and they made sure that he was, you know, playing golf. I, I think his father kind of probably pushed that as well. But when he went to college, he went to Arizona State on a partial scholarship. And when he got kicked out of Arizona State for that drinking situation, he couldn't stay at Arizona State. Once he lost the scholarship, he had to go back to community college and play at the community college level. And while he was there, he was working and paying for college. So I don't think that his father and mother spoiled him financially. I think they made him work for what he wanted. And I feel like over time, they became you know more and more financially stable, the business that uh, Scott's father was kind of leading. So you think that because it kind of developed over time that he wasn't like the spoiled little rich kid, basically, that that yeah. kind of more developed as time went on? I think he liked nice things. I think he wanted to be a professional golfer. I think he felt cheated out of his destiny a little bit. I think that. I think that when he was going through his trial, I think that's when his family was more financially stable and they were able to contribute towards his defense. But when he was in high school, I don't feel like, you know, they were buying him Ferraris and, you know, Lambos and like I don't I don't think that was his life. I think his life was very simple and very basic and he worked. I think he came from a middle-class family and he worked to go to school and all that stuff. He didn't get a scholarship to Cal Poly. So he probably had student loans when he when he graduated. I tried looking up the tuition for the high school and I couldn't find it. I would think that in the 90s it probably would have been like somewhere like maybe 25 to, you know, 25 to 35,000 a year for a high school? Yeah, a Catholic high school. I wouldn't say that that's a middle class family. But you're living in a two bedroom apartment. You're cutting your living expenses to be able to afford to send your kid to a good school. I believe they sacrificed for him. Maybe. I believe they sacrificed for him. I, I believe they wanted to give him all the opportunities that he could have. And they definitely didn't want to send him to one of those raggedy ass schools in San Diego. Then he wouldn't have had his chance in golf. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> when I found out about the situation at Arizona State, it kind of bothered me a little bit because I feel like that's the point where his life derailed. When Scott was kicked out of the Arizona State for that drinking incident with Chris Couch, I feel like it was a disservice and a disjustice to him for Chris's father, Chip, to have him kicked off of the golf team. That was messed up. Yeah. I feel like things would have been different for him as a person. He didn't do anything wrong. Somebody used power to change the course of his life. And instead of going up this direction, he went down in this other direction. I feel like he even would have felt a little discouraged by the fact that someone with that level of power could impact him so negatively and take away his scholarship. It's just a sad thing to see. Yeah. At that age, he would have been like 18, 19 years old. Like he didn't deserve that. In 1994, Scott was most likely transitioning from Cuestra Community College to California Polytechnic State University. He was working part-time as a waiter at the Pacific Cafe to help cover tuition and make ends meet. It would be here in the fall of 1994 where Scott would catch the attention and love of Lacey, also a student at the university. Lacey was a regular at the Pacific Cafe where Scott worked, as she had friends who worked there as well and was frequently seen there visiting. She quickly fell for Scott's good looks and charm and eventually passed her number to him, telling her mother that she had met the man who she was going to marry. Prophetically, they soon began dating and eventually moved in together, prompting Scott to finally shelve the dream of a professional golf career, and he soon began focusing on a career in business. Scott and Lacey were in love. They dated for two years and eventually moved in together. In December of 1996, Scott would propose to Lacey. A few months before Lacey was set to graduate, the couple made the decision to get married in a small ceremony at Sycamore Mineral Springs Resort in San Luis Obispo, near Avila Beach. Heather and Mike Richardson would serve as maid of honor and best man for the couple and recalled how happy they both appeared on their wedding day before leaving for their Tahitian honeymoon. Once they returned to business as usual, Lacey took a job in Prunedale as a wine distributor and Scott, who was working to finish his last year of college, shared rooms with a group of other students. It would most likely be during this time that Scott was to fumble and find himself in an extramarital entanglement with Lacey living in Prunedale while he lived the college lifestyle in San Luis Obispo. It would not be his last. 
Eventually, the couple would come together in San Luis Obispo to open a restaurant, a burger joint called The Shack, that thrived and was very successful. As Lacey settled in post-college, to wait as Scott finished his last year of school. Scott would graduate with his degree in 1998, and within two years, by 2000, the picture-perfect couple would make the decision to sell the shack and relocate to Modesto so that Lacey could be close to family so that they could start a family of their own. They would close on their fixer-upper in the fall of 2000 and sell the shack in 2001. Upon physically relocating to Modesto, Scott took a sales job with Tradecore USA selling fertilizer, and Lacey took a job as a substitute teacher at a nearby school. In May of 2002, after several years attempting to start their own family, with Lacey acting as the perfect wife, focusing on their home, Lacey discovered that she was pregnant. Scott did all the things an expectant father does, like going to Lacey's appointments and participating in Lamaze classes. Externally, the couple appeared excited and anxious for the new addition. Now, we have Lacey, who grew up in Modesto, had almost the, the perfect childhood. No trauma, doesn't seem like. Very good parents, very healthy lifestyle. She goes to San Luis Obispo. You have Scott has some trauma on his mom's side. Looks like he's got some some challenges. Early on, he's already having issues on the girl side. Girls is what got him in trouble in Arizona State, and now he's in this relationship with Lacey. And already at the very beginning of their relationship, there's infidelity. Right. So Scott has an issue. Right. I think that's apparent in his pattern, for sure. Yeah, he's got an issue. And I think she's the, like, goal-driven, like, I want to have that picture-perfect relationship and family and, and all of those things. And I think she was, like, going to do whatever it was that she needed to do to reach her career goals and reach her family goals and all of those things. And I think that's the direction that she was moving in. Yeah, and it makes sense because if you look at her childhood, you can see that she had a great model growing up of what right. a family was supposed to be. Right. She had a strong mom. She had a strong stepfather. She had good co-parenting father who lived close together and they spent time together and it seemed like it was very healthy. Her school experience was healthy. And they talk about her really being big on like keeping her home and cooking and being a wife and being a mom and being into Martha Stewart. And, and I feel like she was trying to create that picture-perfect reality in her life with Scott, who could have been the right guy. Right. But Scott's got a little bit of rot in him. Scott's got rot. Scott's got <laughs> rot. He's a little damaged. He's a little broken. He's a little broken. I don't know where his obsession for telling lies comes from because he starts with the infidelity. It continues with the infidelity later on after, you know, and we haven't even got to the part where Lacey's missing yet, but later on in the trial, the repetitive lying and how good he is at it, how quickly he comes up with these, these fallacies out of his mind. Like, like it's almost, it's almost like a reflex. Right. And I don't know if, if any of that has to do with, you know, his his family somehow. We don't know a whole lot about his dad. I don't know what type of lifestyle his dad had. You know, generally when you're raised in a place like an orphanage, because it's very similar to being a foster child, a lot of those kids have a tendency to be very protective of things that belong to them because they're not used to being able to keep a lot of things. And yeah. that kind of makes me wonder about the relationship between him and his mother and how his mother kind of viewed him going to prison or being sentenced to death. Right. So it makes me wonder how her mentality and all of that could have played into all of that. Also, I, I feel like, she went into the orphanage. His mom would have would have gone into an orphanage at a time when she needed to bond with her mom. 
it was within a couple years. I want to say that that her dad was murdered within a couple years of her being born. Yeah, like two years. She yeah. was like two years old when she right. went to the orphanage. At two years old, that would have been a critical time for her to be bonding with her mom. And of course, she's not bonding. So does she grow up with a like not understanding how to how to show love? She gives her two first kids up for adoption, doesn't she? She does. Yeah. yeah. So she gives her first two kids up for adoption. So I feel like maybe this may have played into a little bit of, of Scott's upbringing on his mom's side. I feel like there would have been some kind of something that contributed to him making up these stories. Yeah. Yeah. Something in his childhood caused him to be the way that he is. It's got to be. Plus, even, you know, even having your family thinking that you're the golden child and you're like, you're the one that's making the family proud and everything, that can be a lot of pressure. And yeah. it also, that could have played into him lying too. If he felt the need to always appear to be a certain way. Right. You know, and that's, it's unfortunate. Now as an adult, that's something you have to be self-aware of, but that could be something that played into it as well. When he was going to Questra Community College, I don't know what caused him to want to transition from Questra where he was playing golf and he was still trying to pursue a pro golf career. But I think when he started dating Lacey, there was something that caused him to give that dream up. And I think that's something that he regretted. I think it's something that kind of nagged on him as he went in and got into this job that I don't feel like he really loved. I think he loved golfing. And I think that he really wanted to pursue that. But he also loved Lacey and wanted to pursue that too. But I don't think Lacey was going to be like, yeah, just go play golf and I'll, I'll support us. No, I think Lacey was like, you've got to pull your weight. Then they started a business together, the shack. So I think at, at some point he was like, well, I'm in this relationship. I want to get married. This is the person I want to be with. I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to give up the dream of playing golf. Giving up a dream that you have always comes with a little bit of resentment. Even though you're making the decision, there's still a little sadness that comes with that. And I think that sadness carries on into his relationship and may have played a factor in, you know, him looking for that exciting life that he thinks he should have had, you know. Golf is boring. Yeah, golf is boring. <laughs> but not when you're making millions of dollars playing it, right. <laughs> then it's not boring. Now, Lacey had a relationship before Scott. What can you tell us about that relationship? So this would really be, I guess, the only really serious relationship that she had prior to Scott Peterson. And when all of this played out, he came out at one point and was talking about, you know, Scott Peterson and basically saying, you had the perfect girl. How could you do this to somebody that like, she's the whole package, you know, she's everything and took that for granted now, him, with his relationship with Lacey Peterson, a lot of her friends talked about how they were glad that they split up because they said that they didn't feel like he treated her very well. He didn't talk to her very well. And I believe he had a rough upbringing. But one of the things that he did talk about is, is how close-knit her family was and how she was really raised. She was raised to be a good girl. She was very respectful. And even in their relationship, they lived together for a while. They were more of, even at their younger ages, more mature. They were doing things like movies and, and things of that nature, not doing things like clubbing and right. stuff like that. Like she was wise beyond her years, you know? Yeah. And she would have dated this guy from the time that she was 16 until she was 19. And then when they broke up, very shortly after that, she started dating Scott Peterson. Right. This guy ends up shooting his a girlfriend later on and he ends up going to prison for a war. That incident. Yeah. Another irony. Right. Another irony that someone who she was in a relationship would end up going to prison as well for some type of domestic abuse type situation. Right. Very ironic. Lacey and Scott get married and they go on this honeymoon. And I really believe that Scott loved Lacey and wanted to be married, but I don't think that he wanted to have children. I know that initially both of them had said that they weren't going to have kids. You know, sometimes your, your kids will say, I'm not ever going to have kids. And you're like, whatever, yeah. like you're going to change your mind. And so I think probably that would be the sentiment that most would have thought of is, yeah, they're saying that, but they're going to, you know, they're going to eventually have kids. I've got a close friend who she married her high school sweetheart and they ended up splitting up over, you know, her wanting to start a family and him not every time they, they, 
spoke about starting a family, there was something else he wanted to reach in his career. And so they ended up splitting up and parting ways and they had been together for years. Yeah. And that's sad, but they kind of went in two different directions. You know, they were moving together, you know, in tandem for a while and then they kind of split off. And can that happen? Yeah. And can that happen? You know, they were, I want to say they were married for about five years at that point in time. If she just suddenly decided, you know, I am ready to be a mom and he decided he still didn't want to be a dad. Well, then, yeah, that can be an issue. And apparently they tried for a while. So it wasn't a, hey, we're going to get pregnant. and She got pregnant right away. Like they actually had to try for a while. Something tells me that Scott, because he had a hard time building a close relationship with his mom, he had a hard time building close relationships with women, period. Why do you think he had a hard time building a relationship with his mom? Because I I feel like the lies and the womanizing comes because of difficulty that he had building a relationship with his mom. And even when you look at all the interviews and everything that was going on, his mom very rarely spoke. He doesn't really talk about his mom. Like most kids are like, I'm disappointed I let my mom down or I don't know. I just don't feel like there's a strong relationship there. Where with Lacey, you feel her connected to both her mom and her dad. You feel a connection there. Right. You, I don't see the connection with, with Scott and his mom. And I think because of her childhood and their relationship, the womanizing and the lies have to do with an inability to bond with his mom. And I think that kind of plays into his relationship with Lacey. And almost as if the relationship is an act. His relationship with Lacey is like an act. Like this is what it's supposed to look like. This is how I'm supposed to be. And his relationship with Amber Fry is exactly the same way. It's overly embellished. Well, and the thing there, too, that's crazy is that, you know, you say him not wanting kids, but then he gets into a relationship with somebody who's a single parent. She has a child. So it's not like he's going from one relationship where he's getting ready to be a father and then he's going into a relationship where he won't be a father. You know, he's seeing somebody who has a child. Yeah. That's my theory in terms of the defect in his psychology. Right. And there could be some basis there for sure. Yeah, I'm just spitballing. But in playing devil's advocate against my own theory, he doesn't do a good job of pretending when his wife goes missing. He doesn't have the right emotions. And so to me, that really stands out. That really stands out as being strange. Because if he's such a good actor, and all his relationships are are these facades that he's kind of role-playing and being the perfect significant other spouse boyfriend whatever then why can't he act sad when his wife is missing because maybe he ain't innocent i don't know (laughs) it just makes me wonder scott has his first affair at the very beginning of his relationship with lacy do you think lacy knew i don't think so i don't think she knew I think probably some of the guys did, like some, like obviously, probably his roommates. I don't think she knew. Yeah, I don't think that she would have put up it. I don't think she was the kind of person that would settle. Yeah. The fact that she left the other guy who wasn't treating her as good tells me she knows how to leave a relationship. Right. So, and also she wasn't a dependent type of woman. She wasn't like, oh, I depend on him. or And if I don't have him, I, I can't make it. She was a self-made person. And even with that, you know, her friends had talked about how she wasn't like a high maintenance type of girl and that that was something that kind of, even though she still wasn't high maintenance, but that she started liking the more expensive things, the nicer things, the more flashier things, the longer that she was with Scott Peterson. So that was something that was important to him. The facade was important to him. And maybe that's what he was chasing was a facade. You know, because you're talking, but I thought Lacey honestly was beautiful, but she was, then he's dating a girl who's blonde haired, complete opposite, you know? Yeah. Like just completely different. A tall white girl with blonde hair and blue eyes. And his wife is a little short Hispanic lady with brown hair and brown eyes. Hey, don't be hating on. I'm not hating. Short, I got me a little short, short Hispanic short lady. Short Latin lady. With- <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I heard in an interview he was reticent. They use the word reticent. He was reticent about the baby. 
I don't think he wanted the baby. I think he was going through the motions. I think his wife wanted the baby and that made her happy and he was doing what he thought he was supposed to be doing. I think it was all this elaborate play for him. As the temperatures dropped and the warm California breeze turned chilly in November of 2002, Scott was introduced to Amber Fry, a single mom with a 20-month-old daughter from Fresno who worked as a masseuse. They met on a blind date, connected by a mutual friend who had just met Scott. The two would spend time together when possible, with Scott using his work schedule as an excuse to either get away from Lacey or as an excuse as to why he couldn't see Amber. On December 8th, the day before Amber's Christmas party, Scott began searching to purchase a boat. He would eventually select a $1,400 used boat that he would purchase and store at his warehouse. Scott was not keen to fishing, and although he had been invited a few times by Ron, Lacey's stepdad, he had not accepted any of those invitations. When asked by Sharon, Lacey's mom, about the purchase of the boat, Scott stated that it was a surprise for Ron, which seemed very odd to Sharon. Scott would attend the Christmas party with Amber in Fresno on December 9th. He would, however, skip the Christmas party on December 14th that was scheduled with Lacey. Lacey would attend the Christmas party alone, thinking that Scott was being pulled away by work and his job requirements. In conversations with Amber, Scott would lie to Amber, saying that his wife was gone, implying that she had passed away and that the upcoming holidays would be the first he'd spend alone. This would be a prophetic lie and foreshadow Lacey's disappearance. On December 20th, Scott purchased several fishing poles. On December 23rd, 2002, Lacey and Scott went to Salon Salon where Lacey's sister, Amy Rocha, worked and Scott had his hair cut. The two sisters spent time together and Amy would later describe Lacey as very tired and drained. Scott offered to pick up a fruit basket for Amy saying that he would be playing golf the following morning near where the retailer was located. Scott had told several people he would be playing golf on Christmas Eve as well. I believe he had also scheduled tea time for golf. Later that evening, Sharon, Lacey's mother, called Lacey and invited her and Scott for Christmas Eve dinner on the 24th. The time of the dinner would have been between somewhere between 6 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. that night. Scott claims that that night they watched The Rookie, they ordered a pizza, and they went to bed sometime between 10.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. And this brings us to the morning of Lacey's disappearance. And I want to kind of stop there and get your take on the motive. Because I feel like Amber Fry was the motive. It's what gave Scott a reason to murder Lacey. Without Amber Fry, there'd be no motive. So what's interesting is that a couple days prior to the December 9th Christmas party that he went to with Amber Fry. One of Amber Fry's friends had confronted Scott Peterson about knowing that he was married and that he was cheating on his wife with Amber Fry. And so I guess he had said, I'm going to, I'm going to tell her. And so his plan was to tell her on December 9th. Well, on December 8th is when he started searching for his boat and he ended up going with the boat that he chose and set up to pay for that boat, which I believe was paid for on the 9th, because on the 9th is also when he set it up with the DMV and he paid $1,400 for the boat. And supposedly, which I haven't seen any records of this online, I haven't been able to find this yet, but supposedly that was taken out of their joint checking account, which would mean that I'm pretty sure that if $1,400 came out of your joint account, that would be something that you would notice fairly quickly, you know, within... Even if it wasn't for a week, you would know within probably a week that your account's been depleted $1,400. So something tells me that if that were the case, that Lacey Peterson had to have known that he had purchased this boat. What's strange about that is that he wasn't a fisherman and his father-in-law had consistently tried to invite him out to fish. So that was strange. So 
for him to come out later and say, you know, oh, well, I purchased the boat as a surprise for my father-in-law. So you're making $60,000 a year. You're buying a $1,400 boat for your father-in-law. That just doesn't seem likely to me. Doesn't seem likely at all. Not only that, but I'm not a fisherman. Me personally, I'm not a fisherman. But guess what? I have owned fishing poles and I've never owned a boat. And I've gone fishing. So it would seem more likely that he would buy fishing poles before he bought a fishing boat. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> so would, I bought a boat and in order to make my story look good, I'm going to need some fishing poles. I need some poles. fishing poles and some bait and some lures. And some of the lures that he had so we were still in the packet. I've even owned a tackle box. That was a caboodle. I want no tackle box. <laughs> <laughs> you call it a caboodle. I call it a tackle box. It all depends on what you put in there. But I say that because he goes and he buys fishing poles after he bought the boat. You can fish off a pier. You can fish off a bridge. You can fish off the side of the ocean. You don't have to be in a boat. And guess what? He bought a freshwater boat. Put it in the saltwater ocean to go fish. Strange. So he wasn't planning on using the boat to go in the right water. And he wasn't planning on fishing. He wasn't planning on doing either one. Yeah, strange. Strange. That's a great call out. He does tell Amber that his wife is gone. And he doesn't admit to anybody that he's having this affair. When he gets questioned and they say, hey, are you having any marital problems? He would later admit... On multiple occasions, he would admit that he told Lacey about the affair with Amber. And he would say, oh, she wasn't really mad. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't going to split us up. You don't know our relationship. He tells Diane Sawyer this. You don't know our relationship. It's highly improbable that you would tell an eight-month pregnant woman that you're married to that you had an affair. And she would be like, oh, well, that's okay. Men are going to be men. It's highly unlikely. And then given Lacey's personality, it's even more unlikely. Yeah, for sure. And also, he, he makes a comment about, well, why didn't Lacey tell anybody about it? And his excuse is, oh, she didn't want to ruin anybody's holidays. But if she was hiding that deep of a secret, it would have been evident in her and how she carried herself, in her communications. People would have been like, she's not her chip herself. She's not, she's always happy and she doesn't look like she's having a good time and she's not, you know, she looks down, she looks sad. And no one describes her that way. Everybody describes her as excited, ready for this baby to be born, a little tired, but she's learning how to cook meringue cookies and she's still going through life as if everything is hunky-dory and nothing is going on. Right. You know, if there would have been some type of internet searches for getting a divorce or marriage counseling, that would corroborate his story. But there's nothing like that. No, there isn't. I would have to agree that probably for this case, that motive would definitely be Amber Fry. And I think that without Amber Fry coming forward, I think that the case would have been really hard for them to find him guilty. I think she was a piece of that. She wasn't the only piece of the case, but she was a very, very large piece of that case. She definitely gave Scott motive. Now, can you walk us through the timeline on December 24th? On the 24th at approximately 8 o'clock a.m. is when Scott Peterson tells the police that Lacey had woken up and she had some cereal and he was very specific with what cereal she had, despite the fact that he said he was still in bed asleep. He said that she eats right when she wakes up. Otherwise she gets sick because she's pregnant. That's a little bit odd given as far along as she was, but a lot of women, especially when it's their first child will experience nausea and vomiting through their entire pregnancy. I know I did for my first but her mom does corroborate that as far as her getting sick in the mornings and wanting to eat. But he was very specific saying that she ate cinnamon puffs from Trader Joe's. There's a receipt later that's published showing that there was cinnamon puffs bought on this receipt to try to support the fact that she was eating cereal and she was eating cinnamon puffs, despite the fact that he was still in bed. Then between about 8.40 and 8.45 a.m. in the morning is when the Computer shows when they do a forensic analysis on the computer at their home 
it shows that somebody was online searching for a red gap scarf and also sunflower umbrella stand. And the reason that that's important is because that's one of the things that on the defense side that they speak about because they're saying, well, that that must have been Lacey Peterson because she's a woman and who would be searching a woman's scarf and she loves sunflowers and who would be looking for a sunflower umbrella stand other than her, right? Well, you can't prove who's using the computer, but there's internet search history that shows that somebody was looking up those two things. Then at 8.55 is when Scott is observed by a neighbor loading something wrapped in a blue tarp into his truck. At 9 o'clock a.m., Scott Peterson tells the Modesto police that Lacey and him were watching Martha Stewart, her favorite show, talking about meringue. He said that she was mopping the floor and was going to finish cleaning up and then was going to take the dog for a walk. He states that... So at some point in time, the time changes as far as when Scott's saying that they were watching... Martha Stewart. And one of the reasons that that could be is that because meringue isn't brought up in the Martha Stewart show until about 948 AM. So by him saying they were watching at nine and then knowing that he specifically mentions meringue, that didn't occur until the 948 mark. Now, the thing about that is that there is a confliction because when he's observed by the neighbor, there's a different account for the time because he would have been leaving home between 9.30 and 10.30 a.m. quite possibly to include, you know, the showtime of the meringue mention. And then the evidence at 10.08 where he would have made a call at or near his home. We do, however, know that it had to be before 10.18 a.m. when the neighbor returned the Peterson's dog with its leech to the yard. So according to Detective Al Bracchini, there was another pregnant woman in the neighborhood with a golden retriever who walked her dog that day. So they both had golden retrievers and they both walked supposedly their dog that day, right? So when they're trying to say that Lacey Peterson walked her dog that day, there's where some of those inconsistencies can be found. When I'm looking at that timeline and I'm looking at that 948 mark, I think that there's no way Scott would have known about the meringue unless he actually saw the show. That's a very definite marker. He couldn't have made that up. I believe that that, that is a solid time mark. 948. 948. The other solid time mark is 1008 because that's when his phone pings and he's making the call. So there's a 20-minute gap there from the time that the meringue was playing on the TV on Martha Stewart and the ping on his cell phone. And now there's a 10-minute gap where the dog is found and brought back into the backyard. And by then, he's gone. So at 10.18 a.m. is when his neighbor, Karen, observes Mackenzie, the Peterson's golden retriever, alone with the muddy leash. So that would mean that she found the golden retriever with the muddy leash within 10 minutes of his phone call. What possibly could have happened in 10 minutes? That's only a 10 minute gap. Right. So that would mean that she would have to walk out the house, be walking for 10 minutes and the dog show back up at the house before it's put back in the house, in the yard. And that's just doesn't Un seem very unlikely. likely. Yeah. So that means dog. she would have had to have immediately walked out when he did. Right. Or right after he did. And would have disappeared in 10 minutes. Right. Because that's when the dog was found was 10 minutes after that call. Right. And that's just. Too just, tight of a timeline. Yeah, it is too tight. So then at 1039 to 1049 a.m. in the morning is when their computer forensic analysis on the computer at the warehouse that he went to. The warehouse wasn't that far away from their house. It was about three miles away from their home. And that's where he went to go pick up the boat to go fishing. He did some stuff on his computer. I guess he happened to send an email and he looked up a part that he had purchased um, to figure out how to assemble that particular part. And so a lot of people talk about this timeline as well, saying, well, he was there. He was on the computer. He sent an email. And so they use that to back up a timeline. But again... We know that he was at the house at 10.08, and we know that the dog was returned at 10.18. So 10.39 to 10.49 doesn't have nothing to do with that timeline. You know, that shows that he was at the warehouse after 
at 11.15 a.m., he leaves for the Berkeley Marina. This is based on the fact that it takes about an hour um, and 37 minutes to get there from the warehouse. And he arrives at the Berkeley Marina about 12.54. That's when he's stamped in there. That's what he has the receipt for. It's, it indicates 12.54. And that was validated by law enforcement to be accurate. One thing I want to say is that typically when people go fishing, they don't go fishing at the the middle of the day. They don't. Typically when you go fishing, you go fishing at the at the break of dawn. So you're going you're going fishing at like 5 a.m., 5:30 in the morning, 6 a.m., like not at 1 p.m. And let me tell you, December is winter time. And if it was too cold to go golfing, it was sure too cold to go fishing. Because if you ever go visit San Francisco and you go near the bay, I challenge you to go out there with a tank top and some shorts on and you're going to be cold just standing in the summer. Do that in the summer. (laughs) Yeah, it's cold near there, you know, throughout most of the year. So to be out there in December, it's too cold to golf, but not too cold to fish is crazy to me. Yeah, it's cold. Yeah, it's really cold. So he is out on the water from about 1 to 2 o'clock p.m. And based on how far he went out, I don't know how quick that would have been. He's in an aluminum boat. I don't know how quick he would have gotten out to the spot where he was at. He says the water got choppy and he decided to come back in. He said he was fishing for about 90 minutes. Right. So if he got to the marina at 12.54 and he was fishing for 90 minutes then he would have been fishing until about 2.30 p.m. Right. So his timeline's off. It ended up being, right. he, he only could have been fishing for about an hour based on the other timelines that can be corroborated because he did make a phone call. That phone call was made after he left, which was at 2.15. And if he was only fishing for an hour, okay, now you got to consider this, you have to put your boat into the water and you have to take your boat out of the water. That's at least a five to 10 minute transaction. He even talks about later how somebody somebody saw me and I was having a hard time getting my yeah, boat I was out. out. Yeah, I was asking some questions so, and I was trying to get some help. Um, so he wasn't out on the water very long. There's just no. no way. So think about the timeline. He's in the water for an hour from the time that he gets there until he leaves, right? It's actually from 1254 to about 215 when he calls his wife, mm-hmm. right? That's about one hour and 20 minutes total. Give or take five to 10 minutes to put the boat in the water, five to 10 minutes to pull the boat out of the water. So an hour is what you have. You have to get in the boat and you have to go to where you're going to fish. So let's say that's 10 to 15 minutes to get to where he's going to fish and then 10 to 15 minutes to come back. That's another half hour. He drove an hour and a half and fished for 30 minutes and did all of that work. And you say he drove an hour and a half. That's three hours there and back. Yeah, that's three and hours. It's not a it's not a nice drive. He drove for three hours. He spent he spent about twenty minutes getting the boat into and out of the water, and then he spent about thirty minutes paddling out to where he's going to fish to the fish for thirty minutes, catch nothing. <laughs> he didn't even know what lures he used. <laughs> And the type of fish that he said he was going out there to catch, they he said wouldn't be out there. He's the absolute <laughs> worst fisherman in the history of fishing. It doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't make that's like me getting driving all the way to the gym and doing one rep of one exercise and coming right back home. It doesn't make any sense. It's a terrible alibi. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible alibi. So then at two fifteen PM is when he calls Lacey. And he leaves a message and he says, I just left a message at home. It's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley. I won't be able to get to Vila Farms to get the basket for Papa. I was hoping that you would get this message and go out there. I'll see you in a bit, sweetie. Love you. Bye. This was the fruit basket that he was supposed to get for his sister-in-law. When he was originally going golfing, that would have been next to where the golf place was. Then at 3.25 p.m., Scott gets gas in his truck. A Let me ask you a question. It's Christmas Eve. He's picking up a Christmas gift for his, his papa. <laughs> right? He's getting a basket for his papa for a Christmas gift. Mm-hmm. He knows if he goes fishing, papa's not getting his Christmas gift. <laughs> he knows this. 
He knows the timing is not, is, it's, it's impossible. I would know this knowing that it's Christmas Eve and they're going to close early. He's not going to make it. So then at 325, he gets gas in his truck at a gas station in Livermore, California. Though he managed to have his his uh, Berkeley Marina ticket, he did not have his fuel receipt. However, they were able to to confirm this on his bank records. So then at 3.52 p.m., he calls, you know, Lacey again, and he doesn't leave her a voicemail this time. Then at 4.30 p.m., he drops the boat off at the warehouse, and then he proceeds home. And he ends up getting home from his fishing trip at about 4.45 p.m. He tells the Modesto police that the only unusual thing was that that the door was unlocked and that also that he had found the leash on the dog muddy. And he just assumed that maybe she was at her mom's because they were supposed to have Christmas Eve dinner with her mom. And so he immediately put his clothes into the washer, grabbed some pizza from the fridge. Remember, he says that they had pizza the night before, got some milk. And after he got out of the shower and put put his clothes on is when he calls Lacey's mom. And at some point, he also states that he checks the voicemail on the home phone, which, of course, he hears his message that he had left on the home phone when he checks the messages. So one thing that I found strange about when he got home and he had pizza is that they're supposed to be going to have dinner soon. So that was kind of odd to me, too, that he would even be having pizza, knowing that they were supposed to be going to Lacey's mom's that evening. So after he gets home, which he says he gets home about 4.45 p.m., he makes a phone call to Sharon Rocha and he says, Mom, is Lacey there? And she said that she told him no. And then he said that, you know, her car was there, but that, and the dog, but that she wasn't. You know, he told her that she's missing. And of course, she got kind of irritated about that because he said missing. And she tells him, you know, we'll go ahead and go to the park. You know, we'll call the police. And so then at 5.47 p.m., Ron Gransky calls 911 to let them know that Lacey's missing. Hi, can I help you? Yes. Um, my son-in-law called. He went to play golf mm-hmm. this morning mm-hmm. at 9.30. My daughter's been missing since this morning. She's eight months pregnant. She took her dog for a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. The dog came home with just a leaf shot. And the dog came back without your daughter? Right. Okay, what is your- the two things. One is the is the statement of she's missing. I feel like that's a slip. I feel like it's a slip too. And later on Sharon would re- recall that statement and say, "Why would he say she's missing? When you come home, you don't go, "Oh, so and so's not here. They're missing." No, you go, "Oh, so and so's not home." Yeah. Hey, I can't find her. Yeah, you hey, know, your mom's not a- here. She, do you know where she's at? She's not home. You don't say she's missing. Yeah. Plus, if he hadn't gotten through to her before he got home and being that she's pregnant as far along as she is, you would think that he would have called her mom and been like, hey, can you go check on Lacey? Because she hasn't answered any of my calls and she's home alone. If she's not with you, you know, I'm kind of concerned. And I think that's one of the things that really stood out in his trip to the marina is that the multiple times that he says he reached out to her and left messages and voicemails and whatnot, he never called a family member to go check on her to see mm-hmm. if she was okay when he knows she's eight months pregnant. He's been to the appointments. He's been to Lamaze class. He's, he's been following the pregnancy. He knows at what point she's at. I'm sure he got the same book all guys get when we first have our pregnant wife, which is all about pregnancy and how you're supposed to respond. And we're I just supposed know, to got a book like that. Yeah, we do. We, we get that book <laughs> and we, we read that book because we're nervous as hell to do it wrong. But he would have known, he would have known it was a delicate time period in her pregnancy, but he doesn't call anybody to go check on her or see how she's doing or anything like that. So it's kind of odd. It's a, it's a little bit odd. Well, and one of the things, so they had a housekeeper housekeeper had come to the house that morning on the 24th and when she was done cleaning one of the comments that she had made they had asked her if anything was out in the bathroom because in the bathroom there was a chair and there was a curling iron out and she said no that there was nothing out in the bathroom so that was either placed out or she was there and she did her hair that morning and I think one of the things that had come out is that the night before when they were with Amy and Scott was getting his haircut, 
they talked about how Amy had showed Lacey how to do a particular curl in her hair. And so people were trying to lead people to believe that Lacey that morning was trying to do her hair in the hairstyle that Amy had showed her. But one of the things that had come out about the story that morning about her mopping the floor and like having this burst of energy was that the day before everybody talked about her mom talked about her being tired on the phone when she talked to her her sister Amy talked about her being tired you know like just exhausted and then when it came out that she was missing she had a yoga instructor that she had gone to within just a couple days of her going missing who said she could hardly walk she's like there's no way she would have been walking a dog like yeah wouldn't happen recall she's five one yeah the dog is like half her size yeah so the yoga instructor's like there's no way that story of her walking the dog not true i would not let my wife walk a dog at eight months pregnant a big dog like that because dogs have a tendency to pull you and yank you in a certain direction when they see something i would walk the dog myself so that my wife wouldn't have to you know, and I understand that it was her way of getting exercise and that walking was helping her to get ready to deliver and whatnot, but I wouldn't let her go alone. Yeah. It's not good husbandry. Good husbandry, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was not being a good husband. So, so Ron calls 911 and then the police meet Scott Peterson at the park at East um, La Loma Park there in Modesto. And of course, Sharon Rocha and Ron Gransky both go to the park as well. And Detective Al Brocini goes through the home after and he finds no signs of forced entry, um, no evidence of a struggle, no bloodshed, anything of that nature. Um, there was a couple things that they noted. They noted that there was a couple drops of blood on the blanket in the room. Scott Peterson said nothing had happened in the room since that morning, basically saying that the bed had been made and everything. But he said that they had taken a photo and that there was definitely an imprint in the bed that didn't align with the story that Scott Peterson gave that nobody had like been on the bed or, you know, anything of that nature. The blood supposedly came from his hand where he had a cut. Right. So when he's questioned later, that was one of the things that they noticed was the cut on his hand. And so after they searched his home and warehouse, which he allowed for them to do, and there are some different things that they took pictures of and whatnot, but he ends up being questioned that evening um, and through the early hours of the morning, which is normal in a case like this, no matter who you are. And during the course of that interview, you know, we know several things come out. We know that the detective asked him at one point if he had fired a gun that day, and he said no. He agreed to do a gunpowder residue test, which he did. And a gunpowder residue test is only good within so many hours. I want to say at the eight-hour mark, um, there's it's not even considered. And actually, for most, they'll say six hours. It's not even considered a test to do with somebody who's been moving around. And by if you're deceased, you can do it. But if you're alive moving around, the chances of it coming back accurately are highly unlikely. Even if they would have done it if it wasn't within so many hours that the likelihood of it even being accurate would be highly unlikely but he agrees they do it it comes back negative he also agrees at that point in time they ask him if he'd be willing to do a, a polygraph test which is a lie detector test and he says sure just to eliminate you as a suspect you'd be willing to take would you be willing to take a polygraph test there I've heard right yeah, yeah, I mean, I, it's not nothing that can be used against you, but yeah, I believe they're accurate. No, I certainly wouldn't. Wouldn't be now, it'd be, you know, a day or two, a week, you think about it. No, it's just like the next step in this thing. Um, he ends up not doing it when he speaks to his dad, and his dad tells him, absolutely not, don't, don't do a, a polygraph. So that kind of closes out the day of the 24th. We have now covered who Lacey was as a person. We have a good understanding on who Lacey was. We have a good understanding of who Scott was. We have a good understanding of their relationship and how they were together and what they have experienced as a couple up to the point of this day where Lacey comes up missing. We understand the motive 
the reason why Scott would have had to murder Lacey if he did do it. And then we also have the timeline of that day that kind of talks through all of the activities to include his alibi. So as we close out this episode, you got to learn about Scott and Lacey Peterson, and we hope that that sheds some light on who they were. I know that there's not a lot out there where, you know, they really talk about who Scott and Lacey were and really about their paths. And I think that's important anytime that you're covering somebody's story is to really kind of get to know the people that are part of the story. I think that it helps you understand them better and it helps you follow along with the story better as well. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think too many times the victim becomes what happened to them. Right. The perpetrator becomes his actions. And they're so much more complex than that. And it's important to understand who each one of these players are and how they contribute to the story. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate to contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.